Well, it's good to see you this morning and glad that you're here and uh, glad that you've come out to worship. Um, it's just an exciting day to be in God's house and I'm excited that you're here and uh, that you've come uh, to sing praises to God, to hear his word and uh, to fellowship together. I'm glad that we have been able to do that so far this morning. If you have your Bible, if you'll turn with me to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 3, Hebrews chapter 3, we're going to begin in verse 1 this morning. When you have that, I invite you to stand with me in reverence to God's word. Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. The Bible says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. You may be seated. If you think back over the previous two messages that we looked at in the book of Hebrews, if you were with us, if not, I encourage you to go back and read chapters 1 and 2. And in those chapters, we see where the author of Hebrews begins to make the case that Jesus is superior. And he does so beginning in those first two chapters with Jesus being superior to the angels. And in doing so, in making that case, he lays out position after position that Jesus holds and place after place and attribute after attribute that Jesus has. And all of those things point toward the superiority and the greatness of Christ. Well, now he begins to move from making the argument in comparison to angels, and he makes the argument in comparison to Moses. And this is very significant, because if you know very much about the Old Testament, you see very clearly that Moses is one of, if not the central figure of the Old Testament. We often think about David, and we enjoy his psalms, and we enjoy what he has done. We look at the prophets, and we think about their contributions and their significance, but Everything hinges on Moses and his work. He is the one who has delivered them out of captivity. He brought them out of slavery in Egypt. He is the one who went before God, standing in their place, and brought them the law that they would use to live by. So as the great deliverer and the great lawgiver, he stands as that central figure and really, everything changes after Moses' work and ministry. 
after he leads them out, they're able to go in and establish for the first time a nation in the place that God had promised them. He makes it possible for Israel to exist. But the author of Hebrews wants to make for us an argument, if you will, that Jesus Christ is far superior to Moses. As a matter of fact, Moses pales in comparison to Christ and his wonder and glory. And so as we begin looking in verse 1, we we see this comparison being made. Because it is important for those who are reading this letter and hearing the writer of Hebrews say these things to them, it's important for them to realize that the one who they have put so much stock in for so long does not compare to the one who has saved them. As a matter of fact, he'll argue in a few verses that Moses and everything that he did pointed toward Christ and what was coming. So beginning in verse 1, he says something very interesting. He says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. He calls them a family here. Holy brothers, this is a notion of family. It really could be translated holy brothers and sisters. They are called together as a family. They are called together from heaven as a family. The calling that they have, what has brought them together, is not based on their ethnicity. It's not based on who their mother or father was. It's not based on their nationality. But rather, they have been called together by God into one single family. He's going to run that theme through these verses when he uses the term house or even maybe a better translation, household, he's talking about their family. So what does he tell them to do first as a family? He wants them to consider Jesus. He wants this holy family who has been called together by God to reflect on Jesus. The previous two chapters have been this huge body of evidence about how great Christ is. It would be plenty enough to stand in front of a jury and argue the merits of Christ based on Hebrews chapter 1 and chapter 2. And so now he tells them, using this first word in verse 3, Therefore, because I've said all of these things in chapter 1 and chapter 2, now, you holy family, you family of God, take a moment and reflect on the evidence. Take a moment and consider what I have said and dwell on it. Now, most of the time, if you and I were reading this, if you are doing some read through the Bible in a year thing, you would blow through verse 1 so quick that you wouldn't even begin to think about it. But I want to tell you this morning, I want to encourage you this morning that one of the reasons that we have such shallow faith, one of the reasons that we often do not respond to what God has called us to do in our lives is because we do not take time to stop and consider and dwell And reflect on what Jesus has done and who he is. We blow right by it. We almost have become the daily Bible reading type of faith. 
where we need to knock out so many verses in a day that we don't take a moment and reflect. Think about the things that we have looked at over the last couple of weeks. They have enormous ramifications. They should cause us to change who we are and the way we orient our life. And so he takes a moment and says, think about Jesus. This is one of the problems that we face in much of the preaching and teaching that we hear today. There's a lot of do this or don't do that. But there's very little consideration of the Savior and what He has done. We hear and we often are guilty of teaching a lot of moralistic thought. We want to do a lot of self-help instruction. And we try to find therapeutic remedies that make people feel better about themselves. And that's preaching. Or that's teaching. You know, 12 weeks to a better marriage... Or 13 weeks to a better kid, and we'd all sign up for that one. We all definitely want that one. Maybe even 26 weeks would be appropriate with some of our children, if they're like mine. But what good is that? If we take all of that time to improve our kids, or our marriage, or our finances, or whatever it is, and we leave out Jesus. There was a study done a few years ago, and the study was of teenagers and young adults in America and, and how they viewed the world and what their faith was like. And the results were this, that most people that they surveyed and interviewed, their religion was something like this. There is a God, be good, and do better. That's pretty poor, right? There's a God, some God. And, and he wants you to be good, and he wants you to basically maybe be happy. We just read two chapters that talked about the king of the world who died in our place. And if our faith is no deeper than being good and being happy, then we've missed it. We don't often hear about the need for a Savior anymore. Without Him, without Christ, it doesn't matter how good we try to be. It doesn't matter how happy we try to be. It's never going to work. The best solution that we can come up with, the newest craze, the best diet, the best financial plan, the best way of parenting or having a good marriage, whatever it is, it will never work without Christ. It will not even come close. And so the writer of Hebrews says, consider Jesus. I want to encourage you that the next time you're facing one of these difficulties that can allegedly be solved by a 10-point plan, that maybe the first place to go is to the one who holds the world in his hand. Because he, apparently for some people it takes 40 days of doing this or six months of doing that, but he made the world in six. I think he's more powerful than anything we're going to come up with. 
It's the reason why we, on a weekly basis, need to hear Jesus preached. It's why we need to be in the Word considering who He is, because He is the only solution that works. The rest of it might be good for a season, but it will not last. Consider Jesus. Secondly, he says here, also in verse 1, He says, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. The apostle and high priest of our confession. How interesting it is here that Jesus is presented as holding two offices. One of them we talked about last week in the high priest office. But here he calls Jesus an apostle. This is the only time in the whole New Testament where Jesus is called an apostle. It's a very odd term for the writer of Hebrews to use because nobody else does anywhere else. No one else even comes close to using this term about Jesus. But it's very appropriate because he's trying to make a connection here. See, as we talked about last week, a high priest is one who represents the people before God. The high priest was the one who went in and made the sacrifice for the people. He stood in the people's place so that the people could have a connection with God. Well, the interesting thing is an apostle does exactly the opposite. An apostle is one who hears from God and gives that information to the people. It's one of the reasons that as as Baptists, we don't believe that there continue to be apostles today. Because apostles were one who walked with Jesus, who talked with Jesus, who heard his message from him, and then shared it with others. Well, here Jesus is called an apostle because he is the one who has been sent from God to tell us what we need to hear. He brings a message to us, and then as priests, he takes our case before God. He is truly the beginning, an apostle, the one who shares the message, and the end, the priest who takes what we need and sacrifices it to God. He's the author of our faith and sharing it as the apostle and the perfecter of our faith and going before God as our priest. See, that's why, for us, it's foolish to try to go down any other road or consider anyone else. Who else do we need if Jesus is the beginning on one side and the end on the other? If he is the one who brings the message and he is the one who makes the message come about. That's the sad thing when we don't consider Jesus. When we try to go in our own direction and try to do our own thing. is because we miss the point that the author of Hebrews is making here that Jesus is everything. There is no one else. There is nothing else. There's no one who can stand in that place. If he's making the connection with Moses, who better than Moses? Moses, the lawgiver. Moses, who told the people what they needed to hear to have a relationship with God. Moses, who brought them out of their captivity and took them to the place that God had planned for them. Who better to be that person? And yet the writer of Hebrews says it's not Moses. It's Jesus. It's not Moses who was able to come and share clearly the message of God. But rather, it's Jesus. He is the apostle and high priest of our confession. Our confession, that 
that thing that we believe, that thing that we know to be true, that, that points us to God and gets us to God. He is the one who gave it to us, and he is the one who made it happen. Next, we see that, beginning in verse 2, that Jesus is faithful. Verse 2, who was faithful to him who appointed him. This is a very simple statement. Just like consider faithful is, is not a word that we would give a lot of thought to. But it's loaded with meaning. When, when the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is faithful, and more importantly, Jesus is faithful to the one appointed him, God the Father. He's faithful to God fully. Think about what Jesus has been asked to do. Jesus, in his glory, as we saw in earlier verses during this series, that that Jesus was there at creation and Jesus made everything that is and that Jesus is, is so superior and yet he humbles himself. He sheds that position with God and he comes and he dwells among us. He comes and he lives here on earth. He comes and he takes on this, this form of a man. Think about if we had the opportunity to take on the form that Jesus had. If we could shed this. I mean, we just sang a hymn that talked about our faithfulness to to God even at the moment of our death. And as Christians, we, we think about the time that is to come when we are able to dwell with God forever in eternity. We're able to, to scrap this, this mortal body that, that fails and breaks down and decays and take on a promised heavenly body that will never do that. Think about if you had the opportunity right now to just switch places. Not have to fool with this anymore. No more aches, no more pains. Perfection. Just take that on. Sounds good to me. Sounds like the direction I'd want to go in. You know, I mean, I'm not old yet. It's felt like it a couple of days walking around with my knees hurting in the rain and stuff like that. But uh, I'm thinking that sounds pretty good to me. Once we had that, we would never want to come back, right? If we had complete perfection, we would never want to come back. That's why it's silly to think that there are people up in heaven looking down on us concerned about our griefs and concerned about our heartaches. That's foolishness. Why, if you had perfection, would you ever want to look back? And yet what Jesus did is he left perfection. He left bliss. He left heaven and he came to dwell among us. Friends, that is more faithful than anyone has ever been to you. God, sending Christ, sent the most faithful one ever. And he was faithful not only to come, not only to live among us, but he was faithful to come and to die here. He is God. He had no need to ever experience death. 
Death was reserved for those who were sinful. Death was reserved for those who disobeyed God. God doesn't disobey himself. And yet he comes and he dies. And because he was faithful, verse 3 tells us that he was counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As a matter of fact, he says, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. If you read that a few times and you read it through as like a physical house, it throws you off, right? Um, because it's not, it's not what he's saying. I, I don't know exactly what your translation says, but when he's talking about a house here, he's talking about a family. He's talking about a household, not a physical building. And so he, he says here that that Moses is, is faithful. He says Moses was faithful in verse 5 in, in all God's house. But he says that Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Moses comes and Moses helps build the household of God, but he does so as a servant. Moses is just going about his life. As a matter of fact, he had been abandoned as a child. Not really abandoned, but he had been put in a basket and floated down a river. That's sort of abandoned. But he fell into Pharaoh's household, and he was raised in Pharaoh's household, and he was raised in riches and privilege, but he got mad at this guy, and he killed him. Not a really good way to start out your ministry, killing people. It doesn't normally work out real well. And so he flees into the wilderness, and while he is there, he is confronted by God. God speaks to him through this burning bush. And even though he has a few rounds with God and he argues with God and he's not articulate enough to go and do what God wants and they go round and round, finally, he obeys. And he obeys and he goes and he, he speaks to Pharaoh and Pharaoh eventually, after just catastrophe after catastrophe, finally allows the people of God to go. So Moses leads them out, and Moses takes them to the wilderness, and, and the people rebel. But even in the rebellion, God is faithful, and he sends them the law. And Moses, even though he had faults in his life, Moses remains faithful. But he doesn't remain faithful as the head of the household. He doesn't remain faithful as the one who builds the household. As a matter of fact, the household that he is leading, the people that he is leading, are not his own in the sense that he started them. These are Abraham's people. These are the sons of Abraham, not of Moses. Moses simply, with all of his greatness and with all that he has done, he is just a servant. As a matter of fact, he says here he, in verse 5, to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. That's what Moses does. Moses, in his law that he gives, that we see there in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, those, those four books that have much of the law that he gives, that the law there is just pointing to Jesus. Moses, in testifying about these things, is just pointing to Jesus. He's just a servant who points to Christ. As a matter of fact, if we move on, we see the prophets that come. We see the priests that come. We see the kings that come. They're they're just pointing toward Christ. 
As a matter of fact, every time, it's very interesting, but if you look, every time the people of God try to place their hope in anyone but Him, that person fails. Moses hits the rock too many times. That's not like a drug reference or anything. He literally takes a stick and hits a rock. David, countless lists of things he did. Even a man who had a heart after God still he still had an affair. He still had someone killed. We look at the kings that were to come, and, and continually, if you go and you read in First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, Chronicles, you see that the Bible says that they did evil in the sight of the Lord. God had warned them from the beginning, you don't need a king. They wanted a king, and the kings kept doing something wrong. They had to bow their heads in shame. But luckily for us, they continue to point toward Jesus. The prophets were not perfect, but they gave a message that pointed toward Christ. And so here, Moses is the servant, but Christ, Christ who has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, Christ who is the one who built the house, not the house itself, Christ gets a lot more glory than the people of God because he is the one who has built it. Like verse 4 says, for every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Yes, we could point back to Abraham. You could point back to Abraham in building the family of God. He was promised that he would have a son, and from that son would come many nations, and his people would be like the sands of the seashore, like the stars in the sky. He would have that type of family. But somebody called Abraham out of the place that he lived. He lived off in some country in some pagan place where they didn't worship God and didn't believe in God, and God calls him out, and he shows him this place that he is going to be given Even in that, God builds the family. And so Moses is a servant of the family. He he is a part of the household, but he, he stands there as a servant. But Christ comes, and Christ is not a servant of the household. But he is the son. He is the heir. It's his household. It's his house. It's his people. See, Moses testified about what was to come, but Jesus built, and therefore he receives the honor. He receives the honor from Moses, and he receives the honor from everyone else. Even Moses, if Moses were to come and talk to God's people, he would say, follow Christ. As a matter of fact, if we go to Jesus' ministry and we see where Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on a mountain... And there, this really weird thing happens. And weird is maybe the best way to describe it. Jesus is standing there with them, and all of a sudden, Jesus becomes extremely white. His robes and his face and everything becomes bright and white. And, and Moses appears next to him. Remember, Moses has been dead for a long time. Elijah appears next to him. Elijah hadn't been dead for a long time, but there was a chariot of fire, and he flew up in the sky and... That was really weird too, but that's another thing. So they're standing there with him. Here's the greatest prophet that there ever was in Elijah. 
Here's the great lawgiver, the one who the people have, have placed their hope from his law, the, the Mosaic law. And there's Jesus, the carpenter from Nazareth. So you think, right, it seems like Jesus would, would be awestruck by these two guys, but, but he's just standing there talking to them. And a voice comes out of heaven. And what does he say? He says, listen to Elijah, right? No. He says, hey, here's Moses, the lawgiver. That's, you need to follow him. That's not what he says. He says, this is my son. Listen to him. Now listen, for Peter, James, and John, that would have been shocking. Because who would they have had more reverence for than Moses and Elijah? Who would they have thought more about than Moses and Elijah? Moses, who, who they'd got their faith from, Elijah, who, who they'd got the, the word of God from. How, how would they think any differently about them? And, and God points to Jesus and says, listen to him. Verse 6, he, end of verse 6, he says, And we are, fa- or we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. When God speaks out of heaven on that mount of transfiguration with Elijah and Moses, he tells us and everyone who is listening, listen to Jesus. I would tell you that in the day we live, none of you probably have a Issue. None of you probably struggle with deciding who to listen to between Moses and Jesus. As a matter of fact, people don't like listening to Moses because they read the stuff he wrote and they don't like it. I want to tell you that Jesus listened to it and he didn't do away with it. It's still true as it was when Moses wrote it. But we do struggle in other areas we might not struggle with whether to listen to Moses or Jesus, but we struggle with, to listen to the world or Jesus, to listen to our society or Jesus, to listen to uh, celebrities or Jesus. We struggle with doing that each and every day. Because when we listen to Jesus, we have to go back and look at chapter 1 and chapter 2, and we realize who we're listening to, and we realize that it has a profound effect on our lives, and it will drastically change what we do. It will change what we do with our time. It will change what we do with our family. It will change what we do with our finances and our church. It will change us if we listen to Jesus. And so it becomes much easier to listen to everything else. It becomes much easier not to dwell on Christ, but to dwell on the things that make us happy or make us feel good or whatever. But he says here that we are his household. He builds us if we are his. If we are in Christ, he has built us and made us who we are. He says, hold fast to our confidence and our boasting and our hope. See, we are going to face difficult times. We're going to face great hardship in this life. And it will be easy to turn our gaze to everything but Jesus. But he says that we should hold fast to our confidence. 
when we're going through our struggles, when we're going through our difficulties, instead of conceding, instead of looking for some other answer, some other way out, we should hold fast to the confidence we have in Christ. Sometimes God's timing is not ours. Sometimes we have to wait a while. Sometimes we don't get things exactly when we want them. Sometimes our families don't straighten out exactly when we want them. Our bank accounts don't even out when we want them. Our relationships don't work out when we want them to. And in that moment, it's easy to turn to anything else and everything else. It's easy to put our hope in things that do not matter, do not save, and will not work. But the writer of Hebrews says, hold fast to our confidence. He says we need to boast in our hope. Our boasting in our hope. When we're confronted by the world that tells us that this this gospel that we believe is a scam or a sham. When they say it doesn't work, that it doesn't save, that there is no God, we continue to boast in our hope. Not give in. Not run. Listen, it's... It's not... It's not intellectual to give up on God just because you don't have all the answers. It's not not uneducated to, to believe in the fairy tales of the Bible. I believe everything that this word says is true. A lot of it I don't understand. A lot of it I can't explain. That's okay. Because in that, I can still boast in the hope that I have. That Christ did what he said. And that he meant what he said. And if we place our faith and hope and trust in him, that is the only way. I want to promise you that our world is going to become more and more and more secular. And it's going to become harder and harder and harder for you to maintain your belief. As a matter of fact, it's going to come to a point, and it does most of the world, and it will here at some point too, where you will have to decide whether this is true or not, whether your confidence and your hope is in the Lord or not. And so I would encourage you to start practicing now. Start getting ready now. There's a lot of different things in the world that are pulling us in a lot of different directions. It's the way it's always been. It's the way it always will be. And we have to decide. Will we consider Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who is faithful over what God gave him? Or will we concede? Will we give up? Will we stop trying? Will we lose hope and lose confidence? It's not easy. As a matter of fact, it's hard. But that's what God has called us to do. I want to encourage you this morning. Hold fast to the confidence you have in Christ. Believe that he will do what he has said. Believe that he will be faithful to you as he was to God. They will be faithful in all things and regardless of the trials, regardless of the tribulations you go through, regardless of the hardship or whatever it is, God will be faithful. And friends, I would encourage you above that to boast in the hope that you have. 
We don't boast in the amount of money we have in the bank, because if you're like me, it's not much to brag about. We don't boast in our education. We don't boast in the things we have in this life, because trust me, they can be gone immediately. But if we have hope in Christ, it's something we can boast about. And no one, regardless of our circumstance, can take it from us. Not at any point, not at any time, and not through anything they might do to us. Friends, Christ is greater than angels and Moses and anything else you can name. And he calls you this morning to put your confidence and your hope in him. We bow your heads with me as we pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you that you love us, that you care for us, that your, your love overcomes all. God, I'm thankful that in my weakness, you're greater. You're greater than you're greater than everything. You're superior to all. Even Moses, the one who gave the law that showed your desires and showed your commands and and showed your righteousness and your holiness, even he points us toward Christ. And so, God, we, we want to trust you more. God, I thank you. I thank you that you love us and that you're faithful. That you brought us a message from God and you gave us our hope in him. And that you're faithful. You're faithful above all. You're faithful regardless of our circumstances. And so God, I hope and pray this morning that each person here will have confidence in you. And they'll boast in the hope they have in you. God, there are those here who don't know you, who are lost this morning. They, they've never come to Christ. They, they've never come into a relationship with you, prayed to you. They've never called out to you or pleaded with you or begged you. God, they've never talked to you at all. I just want to pray this morning that they've heard of your greatness and that, God, their desire would be to know you. God, be with us. And lead and guide us. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to invite you to stand with me. Uh, We are going to sing this morning. If things in this world have prevented you from having confidence in the Lord. uh, If that's not where your hope lies. If your hope is in anything else. I would ask you to respond this morning as we sing. Come. I'd love to share with you how to place your hope in Christ. If you know him, but your hope is waning, come and pray. Pray that God would call you back to himself. Would you respond as we sing?